Hello, Lion Cook Nation. This is Ray DeLucci with the Lion Cook Thoughts Podcast. In this episode, I get to interview Chef Michael Zabrowski. Chef Zabrowski is a pastry arts instructor at the Culinary Institute of America, and he is also the author, or the co-author, of the very popular and successful book, The Pastry Chef's Little Black Book. And in this episode, we kind of talk about, you know, Chef Zabrowski's career, and then getting into more of why it's important to travel, and then finally, why it's important to build your brand, how he ended up writing his book. But the biggest thing I took away from him is, you know, not staying in a box and taking risks and doing everything you kind of want to do in life, going to travel to the place you want to travel, going and creating the content you want to create and just being in tune with the industry and what people want in the now. And I think it's very interesting and it's very admiring to see a chef like Chef Zabrowski kind of have multiple, wear multiple hats and have multiple roles in the industry and be successful in all those and that he's doing and being honest in what he's doing and really just appreciating the craft and the process of what he's doing and knowing that if you give your all and you really put your heart into it, you'll get a lot out of it. So I was very fortunate to have a conversation with him and I'm very excited for you all to hear it. Um, the audio on this one is <laughs> better than last time. Uh, there is some background audio. Um, for those of you who don't know, I use the Anchor app to record uh, over the phone. Um, most of my interviews are. I wouldn't never be able to interview everyone if I was meeting them in person. Um, but basically... There's some background noise in this as well as there was some work done on my apartment when I was recording. If you hear that, um, it's faint. But if you hear it, I just want to give you all an update with it. But I really hope you enjoy the episode. I really hope you enjoy what Chef Zabrowski has to say. Please purchase his book, The Patient Chef's Little Black, Black Book. He put a lot of thought into it and he explains that in the episode. And I think it's really cool to support chefs who want to educate you and want to actually like put thought into what you're going to be doing with the book and put thought into why they're making the book and they have a reason for doing it. And, you know, he could have been selfish and kept these recipes to himself and not shared over all the experiences he had, but he went ahead and he was, you know, kind enough to put a resource out there for you that if you really wanted to know what he was making or know the recipes he's earned, he's learned and earned, he, uh, he has that resource for you. So you can find it on Amazon, you can find it wherever else books are sold. So just please check it out. And like I said, I really hope you enjoy the interview. And just a quick update before we get into it on the podcast schedule. Uh, In April, I will be most likely starting to do two episodes a week. I'm starting to have more podcasts. And I, like I said, don't think that it's smart to just do one a week anymore. Um, Where I am at now, if we go back to one a week because of a lack of podcasts, that's it. Um, But really just expect one podcast per week and if you get a if you get a second one that's not to mean like they weren't as good it's just i have the content and i want to put it out instead of just sitting on it because i think you know a lot of you have talked to me about how much you're enjoying the podcast and i want to keep content going for you and i know you listen to it at a day of work like when you're prepping and whatnot and you only have an hour for a week and i want to try to give you more content i guess so just please keep that in mind as i start to put out more content it's also going to give me a little freedom and creativity to get back to doing podcasts of just my own which i like doing once in a while I like talking through things with y'all to the audience um but yeah so like i said very excited for the future uh, we're at 2,000 followers on instagram let's go i'm super pumped about that line cook nation's growing so quickly right now um and yeah don't forget to if you want to rep the nation uh, linecookthoughts.com you get a t-shirt a hat to prep in at work i am very grateful once again for Chef Zabrowski to come on. Thank you so much, Chef. It was such an honor to talk to you, and I learned a lot from our conversation. I hope the rest of the Line Cook Nation does as well. Here we go. 
excited for our conversation. How was your trip? My trip was really great. It was very productive. I got to get to uh, meet a lot of great people. Um, you know, um, Jeremiah Jeremiah Tower was there. He he actually wanted to meet us, and that was just uh, unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, what was the event for? Well, it was American Culinary Federation uh, conference, and so uh, you know, it was one of the one of the keynote speakers. Awesome. Great. All right. Awesome. Well, I just wanted to start the interview. Um, like I said, thank you for being on the podcast. It means a lot uh, to have people like you on. Uh, it's, it's very, it's very good support. Um, it's very good for people to hear different stories from different chefs. So I wanted to start with uh, like, where are you from? What was food like for you growing up? All right. Well, I'm, I'm originally from New Jersey, grew up in uh, Northern New Jersey. And, um, you know, food for me was, uh, well, I think it was good. My, you know, we had a garden, fair sized garden. And my parents were always uh, raised having gardens and, you know, so the concept of, you know, growing your own food, we went fishing, you know, know, home cooked meals were certainly um, part of my, you know, my childhood growing up. Nice. Was there any uh, food memories that stand out to you? Well, on my dad's side, we're Polish and on my mother's side, we're German and Irish, um, but, but primarily German. So, you know. On my father's side, there was the classic Polsky fare. You know, we definitely, uh, you know, ate pierogies and, you know, stuffed cabbage and all the old mm-hmm. classic, all the classic Polish dishes. Um, I remember making pierogies at the at the church with my grandmother. You know, the whole thing. And on my on my uh, other side, you know, there was some, just some German flair, for sure. So I, de- I definitely had that European sort of influence uh, from my grandparents. Awesome. And does any of that uh, find its way into like what you do today, cooking wise or baking wise? Uh, I would say not so much. However, um, I do have a soft spot, especially for certain uh, also German dishes. Every once in a while, I come across something German, you know, like the like the Christmas stolen, and uh, it mm-hmm. just brings back memories. You know. Awesome. Yeah, I'm also Polish, and uh, a lot of Polish cuisine I feel like isn't really at the forefront at school or actually like in the industry really like anywhere um what are some i guess polish uh dishes you've had or polish pastries that you've made uh that you could share uh well the only things that i really have a lot of experience making in terms of polish cuisine would be pierogies you know like this yeah I've, I've had the experience you know uh making them with my with my my babshi as they would say and um you know so i've, I've definitely made pierogies and i've done them a little bit more modern and upscale too, in terms of like having, you know, like you know, truffled cheese and things like that. And also some dessert ones, which are, which are common in, in, Pol- in Poland too, you know, like classic yeah. uh, plum, plum fillings and stuff like that. But that, that's really about it. Awesome. And when did you realize you wanted to be a chef? Um, I would say probably right around in my college years, you know, I was on the fence about whether I wanted to go to culinary school. Or I was uh, studying um, nutrition. I was going to be a dietitian, and so I decided, uh, well, let me go to college. And then if I didn't want to do what I went to college for, then I could always go to culinary school. So I went to college for dietetics. I got a degree. I was on, on route to be a dietitian, but in the end, I just didn't really want to do it. And um, mm-hmm. you know, so I found myself just managing a health food store in a mall. And I just didn't really care for it because it was just retail, like selling anything else. And so I decided, you know, I'm going to go to culinary school. I was still plenty young enough. And that's what I did. Awesome. And how was going to culinary school? What was your experience with that? Uh, It was great. Probably some of the best times of my life. You know, I just really, really was stoked about being there. I I sucked up 
you know, every moment. So I would ask a lot of questions. I was totally one of those students that was really into it. And it was just a pleasure. I loved it. I just loved it. And it was the French Colony Institute? Right. And uh, where is that located again? Uh, well, now now it's called the International Culinary Center. They have since changed their name. Mm-hmm. And that's on Broadway and Grand Street in Manhattan, Soho. Awesome. Yeah, just to give some context to listeners who maybe don't know about the school. Um, right. But, I mean, it's a pretty well-known school. And have you been back since? Or Well, uh, my story is, you know, I, I went out in the industry and worked for many years. And then in 2008 or nine, I went back there as an instructor. And I was an instructor there for eight years. Really? So well, what yeah, did you so teach? I, yeah, so I certainly uh, certainly went back, that's for sure. Um, well, of course, you know, then which... I since made the transition up to the CIA. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what made you transition? Well, I was living in a city for a really long time, and um, I was just looking for a change, you know, looking for a change of employment, change of locale. It's pretty much what it Great. is. Great. Yeah. And, Ali, what were your first restaurant jobs? Well, my very first restaurant job was at the Manor, and that's in West Orange, New Jersey. Very, very classic continental cuisine, very, very old-fashioned, but it was nice. And then after that, I, I went to the city. And so my first, my first job in the city was, up, was at uh, Boulay, working for David Boulay. And at the time, his pastry chef, Bill Yassis, uh, was, the, was the chef that I was working underneath. He later went on to become the pastry chef at the White House. Really? Wow. Yeah. So what was the uh, significance of uh, Boulay and like, working there and like, what it meant to the industry at the time? Because obviously... You know, like for a lot of younger chefs, we don't really have, you know, a grasp on what it meant to the industry as it did back then. So I guess right. what was your take on it? Well, there was there's a few things. I mean, first of all, especially at the time, you know, David Boulay's restaurants was you know, even still on some level. But back then in particular, it was considered one of the very best in, in, in New York City and in the country. And he had the distinction of having the highest Zagat food rating, um, you know. And so there was a lot of notoriety that went along with working there and having that on your resume. Mm-hmm. But, that, but that aside, you know, one of the primary takeaways that I got from working with him and also Billy Office was about the importance of having the most premium ingredients and treating them, you know, respectfully. And that was really the secret to David's success is he just, we had the best ingredients you can imagine. And it was a privilege to, to work with it, you know? Yeah. Yes, definitely. And it really made you understand the importance. If you want to have fine cuisine, really tasty food, it all starts from, you know, the ingredients. And that was something something that I didn't quite get to the full extent working at the manor, for example, because that was a little bit more of a higher volume type of place. And it just didn't fit their business model, you know. Mm. Yeah, it's understandable. So you went from um, uh, Boulay to Cafe Boulay after that? Yeah, yeah. Then I went on to uh, work with uh, Daniel Ballou at Cafe Ballou. I was a pastry sous chef there. And, um, you know, also another wonderful experience. Uh, very, very tight ship, very challenging, very demanding. And, um, you know, there, you know, of course, using high quality ingredients, you know, um, certainly went along with that, with that establishment as well. But there was also a, a little bit more of an elevated sense of of discipline and it was it was it was you know whereas boulet was a french american kitchen you know working at danielle was much more of a french kitchen so there was a mm-hmm. higher higher degree of discipline it was much more stringent and everything was a whole notch higher and uh it was challenging but it was uh it was great and i come out the other side of that experience like that and you just become 
a better chef, more disciplined chef. Awesome. And so after uh, Cafe Blue, did you, did you go to France or did you work anywhere else before you left? Or? Yeah, you know, I was climbing the ladder. You know, I was a, I was a pastry cook for a few years and then I became sous chef. And by the time I was done with working at Cafe Blue, I was ready to take on something a little bit more. And um, back in those days, there was a, a very notable French restaurant in Tribeca called Montrachet. Now, now I think it's Batard. And um, that was with Drew Naporent from his Myriad restaurant group. So anyway, that was a high profile well, French, French restaurant. It's been around for a long time. And um, I became pastry chef there. That was my very first real pastry chef job. And uh, I worked there, you know, as pastry chef for a year. And then literally 9-11 happened when I was okay. there. And, uh, you know, that was devastating, obviously. And because we were in Tribeca, it was pretty close to the World Trade Center. So that effectively closed that restaurant for quite some time. And I need to I needed to move on and, you know, find other employment. Mm-hmm. And so then is that how you got to France? Yeah. So there was a time where I was uh, I was in New York living and I was actually dating a French girl. And uh, we went to go visit her family one one day and um they had one three michelin star restaurant in the town this is in montpellier in the south of france and we decided to go check it out not not that we couldn't even afford to eat just a, just a luck you know and yeah. um it was inside this little beautiful little relay chateau hotel and uh it just struck me like wow maybe i could do an internship here you know and mm-hmm. so we decided to ask the front desk if we could speak to the chef you know thoroughly expecting no you're gonna make an appointment you know we were literally, yeah. literally like cold, 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 what do you call it? Cold calling, like just knocking on doors, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, but the chef came out and my girlfriend was speaking to him in French about inquiring, you know, about having an, an internship or an externship. And then he said, he said, wait. And I was like, oh my God, I think I'm in, you know, <laughs> and, um, and that's what happened. And it was great, you know, so her, her family let me stay with them and I got to spend a whole month at the, at the restaurant. And then I spent another month at a patisserie that they had right down the street, which was, you know, quite fancy. And I, you know, I got the whole, the whole experience of, you know, being in France, working in the three Michelin star restaurant, working in the patisserie and, you know, it was, it was great. That's great. And so then after that, you went into teaching right away or? No, no, no. And after that, um, you know, before I move on, I just want to comment that, you know, by the time I was in France, I was already in the business for, for quite a few years. And, okay. um, and I have to say that my, my training in school, my training in, in, in professional life and work in the city definitely prepared me. I, I, you know, I knew quite a bit in, in, you know, being in France. I didn't feel like I was lost in the woods or anything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I gleaned a good cultural experience from that, I have to say. And I, w- I would definitely recommend it to anybody who has an opportunity, you know, not just for cooking, but for, for life, for holistically. It's just a great opportunity to be immersed in another country like that. Um, yeah, so what's the, what's the best advice then for someone who maybe wants to go to France or another country? Because it can be very uh, daunting, you know, if you really don't know anyone to get over there and like, get your foot in the door. Uh, so, like, what's your advice for, to get... Uh, you there. know, first of all, and I, it might sound a little esoteric, but my, my advice initially would be, you, you like, you just, you just do it. Like, if you, if you really want to do it, you can do it. There's no excuses. You, you know, doors will open for you if you really want to do it, right? You just need mm-hmm. to make, you got to make that, that mental commitment to say, this is what I want to do, and I'm going to do it. I don't care. And you don't even have to know how you're going to do it yet, by the way. It's the, okay. deci- it's the decision that gets the ball, the ball rolling, and eventually 
things will will work out how they're supposed to work out. So that's that's really number one. Um, you know, beyond that, I, you know, do it while you're young, because as you get older and you take on more responsibilities in life, it becomes more difficult. Right. So yeah. there's, there's no time than like right now. And that's that's, you know, what I would suggest. And of course, you know, for me, it was just a, it was just knocking on the door like a kid off the street, literally. And it worked for me. But I had a support system with my girlfriend and whatnot. But there could be others, other ways to do it, of course, you know, conventionally through, through the school's contacts, perhaps. Um, you know, but the more you network with people, the more you meet people, the more contacts you, you have. And that's an important element to our business, too, is to try to network and stay connected with, with other professionals that can help you with different things. And do you suggest someone going out of school, like if they want to do it, to do it right away or kind of follow your path and get a little more skills in the real, like in yeah. the working industry? That's subjective. I, I think it would be wise to personally, I think it'd be wise to have a little bit of experience, you know, because you go, you go to a, you go to a three Michelin star restaurant over in Europe, totally green off the street from culinary school. You know, you're going to have a tough time a little bit, mm-hmm. but you no, know, but if you, if you get a little bit of experience, at least, you know, then I think you're, you're better, you're better suited to, to be thrown into that environment. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. That makes sense. I mean, it's my opinion anyway. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. So, I mean, as after uh, I came back from France, I wanted to transition into something bigger. Uh, so I, I tried to find myself a position in a luxury hotel because, you know, just because, um, you know, you climb the ranks within restaurants doesn't necessarily mean you're all of a sudden qualified to take over a, a hotel. It's a whole other animal instead of organization that you need to learn. And, um, so I was lucky enough to get a job at the Pierre Hotel, which was the Four, which was four Seasons back then, in, in the banquets and pastry. And it was perfect. So I, okay. got to learn, I got to learn the, the mechanisms and the machineries of luxury hotels and how to handle the banquets and the room service and amenities. And, you know, it's just dynamic. There's a lot of moving parts to hotels. And that was, that was really, really a great opportunity. And so once I spent, uh, I spent a couple of years doing that, and then... Now, after that experience, I felt I was able to take on, you know, an executive pastry chef position in a hotel. Awesome. And that's yeah. exactly what I did. Do you th- and I feel, I see it a lot with um, more pastry-focused chefs is that hotels come up in their resume at some point. And do you suggest a lot of, like, pastry chefs to do a hotel experience for a little bit? Uh, and, and not, not necessarily. I mean, it depends on the person, you know. I mean, like, if you if you – are inclined to want to learn volume or, you know, how to handle banquets and, you know, work in, in the hotel side of the industry hundred percent, but you know, not everybody wants to even do that at all. Some people, for example, some people have it in their heart that they want to open up a bakery and they're, mm. and they're, and they're single-minded in that vision and that's all they want to do. So for that particular person, I would say, well, great. Then work in several bakeries. You know, like work yeah. in one, don't stay for years and years, move on to another one, move on to another one, learn as much as you can from different people, different structures, different organizations, different systems, take it all in. And then when you're ready, you're, you're better prepared because you were training in facilities in which you exactly want to do. Right. Mm-hmm. But, but for the people who they're not really sure, a hundred percent recommend working in, 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 in restaurants, fine dining restaurants, um, you know, and or a luxury hotel. Okay. Awesome. And so after the hotel, uh, 
what was like your career path after that? Well, after the Pierre, then I became executive pastry chef for a Weston, a Weston property. Okay. And, uh, and I was there for a good number of years. And, uh, and then in, in between I was, I went, I went to work for four seasons so in a similar capacity in California. And then I just decided that, uh, you know, I felt like I wanted to give back. I felt like I was ready for something different. Like I'd worked in restaurants, I'd worked in hotels, I'd been to France. And I thought I'd like to try my hand at teaching. And, um, you know, an opportunity came along working mm-hmm. for my, for my former, uh, you know, culinary school that I went to my alma mater, French culinary. And, uh, that's what I did. And it, you know, it was great. I really loved working there and had a good time. And it was, it was, you know, steep learning curve. I had to, I had to revisit and learn how to pull sugar and blow sugar and all that stuff at a high level. And, you know, it was, uh, it was good. And, and then that of course prepped me to work at the CIA, you know, one of the best culinary schools in the whole world. Yeah, definitely. And like, I, I talked a little bit about this with Chef Keyword. I just wanted your opinion as well. Um, what's the transition like uh, going from, you know, being a chef in a kitchen to being a chef in a classroom and kind of transitioning into teaching? And, you know, I guess what's the transition like for you um, mentally and also like work-wise? Well, the transition is, is for me, at least in the sense that, you know, when you're, when you're in the industry, it's really about business, getting it done, right? Um, get very guest centric and having systems and things that work, you know, that's conducive to getting the job done. Right. Whereas, whereas here, the objectives are different. You know, I mean, it's a little bit similar for me in American Bounty because when you're in the restaurants that exist too, mm-hmm. but in a conventional classroom and even in you know, an American Bounty is, is not any different. There has to be an eye towards education. You know, I have to have a more, patience with the process i have to make sure that questions are answered that you know it's the educational bedrock is 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 there because that's really what the primary purpose of the school is right yes um where whereas in the industry you know i might be less concerned about the education i just want the job to be done you know so that's really the primary focus for me is the, the educational aspect awesome and for like a place like American Bounty with plated desserts, uh, is it difficult to teach that, or do you find it just takes a little repetition because classes revolve so quickly? And when you're in the industry, you usually have a good amount of time to perfect your station. So is it a little right. more difficult, I guess, in that sense? Yes, yes, it, it, it is more difficult. Um, you know, think about I th- think about it in this way, right? Picture you're a pastry chef in a restaurant, right? Mm-hmm. But your whole your whole entire crew quits every three weeks. Yeah. Right. That's, that's, yeah. what, that's what that's what it is, you know. And so therefore, just when you're starting to get them somewhere where they're we're up and running, we're humming along. Boom. I got to have a whole new class again. So therefore, you know, I need to structure the menus. I have to find that delicate balance because, yes, I need to have a menu that pleases the guests. Right. I need. I want to have positive comment cards. I know everyone's out there taking photos and Instagramming and yelping and you know we have all that that pressure mm-hmm. um, but at the same time i need to make sure that the dessert, the desserts are good enough to satisfy those requirements but not so crazy labor intensive where the students just can't pull it off successfully right? okay because they're students i'm not working with five years seasoned uh pastry cooks here and um You'd be surprised. Sometimes I am too. Uh, you know, some students are really great at certain things, and some students uh, they don't. They don't. They're not. Mm-hmm. Like I, some students they can't. They can't temper chocolate. Some students can't. Can't even make orange with friends. You know, 
Yeah. And so I got to find that, that delicate balance with the dishes where they're nice, but we can, we, it's manageable. And, you know, so that's, uh, that's the challenge that we have. All right. And um, I guess, what is the biggest thing you've learned from teaching uh, pastry students? Well, and it's hard to say exactly what would be the number one biggest thing, um, you know, but, you know, one of the one of the takeaways teaching in pastry is that, you know, the, there's room for all of us in this business. A lot of a lot of us tend to focus on like the top two percentile restaurants in the world, the, the, the Danielle's, the Per Se's, the Bernadens of, you know, of the world. But the business is a lot bigger than just those top establishments. And, you know, not everybody wants to work in those places. Not everyone is suited to work in those places. Not everyone wants to live in a big, major, expensive urban area. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, always just tell, you know, when I try to you know, speak with the students and get to know them a little bit and what their goals are, um, you know, to see where they're at in their lives and in their head and try to steer them to the right path. And, you know, if somebody is not, suited or doesn't want to work in those types of places this means bad right mm-hmm. i mean it's just you just have to find your your niche it's a big big business out there especially yeah. now more than ever more than ever there's a lot more opportunities these days than we had when i started out yeah can we talk about that a little bit uh like what opportunities you see is that more because of media or what do you see out I, there i i think that there's there's a little bit more of a um specialization nowadays a little bit more niche and there's and then there's also a trend of more casualization. So, like for example, you know, if you if you wanted to, you could just work in a cutesy little cupcake shop, or I could work in the, in a in a place that all, they only do chocolates or bonbons, or it's just a mac a macaron boutique, right? Or mm-hmm. it could be it could just be you know working in a catering, you know, that's it, just for 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 an offsite catering company, or you know, I mean, it goes on and on and on all the little genres and things that people are doing. Um, whereas when I, you know, when I first started, it was like restaurants, hotels, maybe catering. And that was it. You know, there was no, you know, little offshoots of that, that you see nowadays. Okay. Yeah. However, I... though, however, with that said though, I still personally believe maybe it's because I'm a little more old school, but I, I do believe for every, every, every pastry cook, having some restaurant time is, is valuable. Okay, I think everybody should work in a restaurant for a year. You know, like a, like a nice fine dining restaurant. Go through the, go through all the seasons. Go through that process of working on the line and feeling that environment and and you know being close to the guests and the hospitality aspect of it all. And it's you know going through the seasons and working with different ingredients and all those things are very valuable. No matter what you do after that. Okay, awesome. Are there any restaurants right now that you would suggest to people listening to work in? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I mean, I'm, I always say to, you know, work in the very best restaurant that you could possibly get into that just in, in the generic sense, you know. And so, like, for example, I personally think that, you know, in, in like New York City is among the best restaurant city in the whole world. And we have so many awesome places there that if someone were to have the wherewithal to say, yes, I'm going to commit to it, I'm going to do it, I'm going to jump in, I'm going to live in New York City, I'm going to do it for a year or two. I highly recommend that. But for other people, okay. that were, that's just too too daunting. Then um, you know, do it in in the, the town that's nearest you or whatever you're comfortable with. 
But the point is to have that that level of restaurant experience. You work at Danielle or Laverne Dan for a year or two. I mean, you're going to learn so much that I, I liken it to, like, if you graduate medical school, you're not really a doctor until you now put what you learn to practice through your residency, right? You have to keep going yeah. well with your education. Now, once you're done with that residency, all right, now you're a functioning, full-fledged physician. And I look at it the same way. You go to culinary school, you're still a baby. Get out there, get your butt kicked a little bit in the hard kitchen, and that, that would be likened to the residency analogy. And, you know, after some time doing that, you're going to find yourself really doing it. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for that advice. I think that's good for a lot of people, including myself to hear. So thank you. Um, All right. So I wanted to kind of get into, because you've written a cookbook. And so I kind of wanted to get into that as well. Okay. Um, So what made you want to write a cookbook, uh, the pastry chef's little black book? Um, What made you want to write it? And how did you kind of, because there's so many books out or so much media out there now, and yours has been really successful, so congratulations right. on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, but how did you kind of go at it in a way that was, you know, unique and something people would want to pick up? And what were you most passionate about when doing it? Well, it's a, it's a bit of a story. Um, so the story goes, well, first of all, the, the name of the book, The Pastry Chef's Little Black Book, was in, inspired by, you know, when, um, you know, all of us, when we were young cooks, we would have a little notebook, you know, that we would carry. Mm-hmm you know, in our, in our, in our pocket. And in that notebook, we would write down recipes and little directives of the chefs and little techniques or sketches of dishes, you know? And then mm. when you leave that particular job, you start a new one. I get a brand new notebook just for that job. Right. Okay. So yep. I had no, notebooks from, you know, Boulay and Danielle and all the places I ever worked and plus culinary school and, you know, all, all sorts of, you know, France and different resources. And there, there came a point where, um, I decided that I needed to transcribe these handwritten notes and recipes on the computer because the, the notebooks were getting ratty and faded and I didn't want to lose them because when I look at them, you know, they're precious. There's a lot of valuable, you know, gems of recipes and stuff in there. And so anyway, I decided to, to embark on that. It took several months, but eventually I, I got finished transcribing all my recipes. So when I was done, I had, you know, nearly a thousand recipes. Wow. And I was like, I'm looking at it in the computer and I'm going, damn, I, I could write a book or like a couple. <laughs> I have so much, mm-hmm. I have so much stuff here. And that's where the, the original, or I should say the initial kind of light bulb went off saying, ah, you know, and um, so that, you know, that's where, that's where, you know, came to be. And for people who might like to do that, again, I say the same thing as I said before, when it comes to, so it comes to thinking about, say, going to France or something like that. You don't have to know how you're going to get there. You don't have to know how you're going to do it just yet. You just got to make that initial decision, you know, just put it out there, okay. put it out there in, in the universe that this is what I want to do. And, and again, don't think you have to know how it's all going to work out. Right. You don't have okay. to. And for me, that's how, how, how it went down. That's awesome. Yeah. For like, I didn't know that's how you wrote the book. And it's actually really funny because an hour before this interview, I was sitting at my desk with my from culinary school, literally from my first Fondue's class into my computer, finally. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's I guess that's a good thing to take away uh, generally, even if you're not writing a book. Right. And so to take it further, you know, um, my my friend Michael Mignano, the, the guy who helped me write the book, you know, he's a long time, mm-hmm. you know, good friend of mine. And we have a mutual, a mutual friend. Uh, his name is Alan Bat. He goes by Batman. And he's a long, <laughs> he's a long time known food photographer in the city. 
And uh, I have worked with him, you know, at one one place that I worked, we hired him to do photo shoots. And Michael at the Pierre, he's, uh, you know, they hired him too. So anyway, one day I'm on the phone with Michael. Michael's at work. And he says, oh, yeah, Batman's coming today. We're doing taking a few photos, right? And then it just, mm-hmm. and it was right around the time when I had finished transcribing those recipes and was thinking about a book. And, and I know Batman's company, The Chef's Connection, they, they, they publish books. Um, and, you know, one of, the, one of the big books that was published uh, through him was with uh, Antonio Bashur, who's a well-known pastry chef, you know. So anyway, I said to him, I said, well, you know, when he comes in, corner him and ask him if he wants to do a book with us. You know, okay. and why not? And then, uh, so he did. And then, you know, Batman was like, yeah, okay, sure. And then there it is, you know. That's awesome. Yeah. And so I guess, did you have to do a lot of recipe testing to get the photos? Or like, what was that process like? Um, well, the, yeah, there was, there was a fair amount of recipe testing. Like some, I would say many, many of the recipes, I don't know how much, maybe half or more they don't really need to be tested because they're already time tested, right? They're all Mm our personal recipes that we know and had used before. And it's just a matter of transcribing them, you know, in a way that maybe the, you know, the yield is not so big, you know, or we have to elaborate on the method, make it a little bit more, a little bit more because for some of us, uh, you, you might, you might know like when you're in the restaurant with your little pocket notebook, you might not write down this big, long, detailed procedure for things it's usually very curt and quick mm-hmm. you know and so when you read my book there's an there's an air of that that rings true some of the rest some of the methods are they're, they're curt they're quick it assumes a base knowledge but i had to expand upon that you know okay and then and then um so what we did was i literally just started transcribing recipes one by one it took you know two years to transcribe one by one and then once i had enough then it's a matter of okay, well, what what are the chapters going to look like? It's like a skeletal skeletal shell, and then I have to sort of fill it in, you know. And mm-hmm. It was an organic process; it just sort of let it happen, and and then uh, you know that's what it was. So I didn't want to force it too much; I wanted it to come out naturally. Um, but the biggest decision was um, when it came to writing the book was how big it was going to be, because I, okay. I I had originally wanted the book to be massive. You know, it already is quite large, anyway. But I wanted mm-hmm. I wanted it to be like a full on like the like the CIA's baking pastry book, the Bo Freiberg professional pastry chef book, like really huge thousand recipes type of thing. Okay. But what I learned through the process is that it it's just physically it's just physically a huge cumbersome book to carry around, you know. Mm-hmm. But but also it's expensive. It's expensive, you know. It's an expensive. Yeah. It's, a, it's an expensive proposition to to print. Then, then it becomes an expensive book to superimpose the cost onto your, uh, you know, your prospective uh, people who are going to buy the book. And I knew that my, um, a lot of my target audience were going to be on the younger side, and I wanted the book to be accessible for them and not, not have to charge $100 or whatever, you know? Yeah. So that's where I find that balance of making it as big as I can. You know, when you look at the book, I only have a few color photos in the center. Everything else is the black and white. And, you know, the reason, okay. and the reason that is is because it keeps the printing cost down. So, therefore, I don't have to charge as much to everyone else, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, and then um, we also made the decision that, as you know, when you look at the book, that the font is really large. I wanted it to be practical. When you open up the book, I can put it on the counter and you can see it easily, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, was, uh, that was a good call, you know, getting that, that particular format. 
because that's like the number one thing that people appreciate about the book is that it's professionally written in a way where you can actually read it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but beyond all that, you know, you were talking about, you know, being, being successful and, um, you know, what I've learned about that is, uh, you gotta get on, you gotta get on the pedestal on social media, at least for us. And you gotta actively promote the book. Mm-hmm. Like a kid just put out a book and be like, okay, buy it. <laughs> you know, yeah, it takes like yeah. a lot of work to market the book, get the word out. And, uh, you know, we've been, and then, and then I, I'm, I'm proud and stand behind the product. So I know, I know the recipes work, you know, and once it gets out there, people start seeing it and they realize the, the breadth of it and how much material is really in there. And you could lean on it and, and it becomes like, oh, well, let me check the, the little black book, you know? And um, yeah. that's kind of where the bedrock of, of the successes has stemmed from. Yeah, I mean, that's awesome. I mean, looking, like watching you market it and then the success you've had with the book, you know, I look up to that because I'm trying to market my own brand on social media. So seeing a chef who's been successful also taking the care and the time to really market his work is like really something that I looked up to. So well, thanks. yeah, you have to it do cool it. It's cool to see. You have to do it. And we have a great, we have a great, uh, everyone has an opportunity these days, the way, the way social media is, you know, everybody has their own little microphone, you know, so it's mm-hmm. a matter of getting up there and, and doing it. Um, but there's more to it than that. You know, like I need to be, I need to be, uh, what's the word responsive with people. I get a lot of, a lot of requests, a lot of people ask me questions. A lot of people reach out to me, even if it's just a compliment or something. And I, and you know, I always try to respond back to them, you know, like every time somebody makes a comment or I try to, I try to acknowledge it and really, you know, have that interaction with the, with the, the growing fan base. I mean, I'm not that big, right. Where I can't, mm-hmm. can't do that. You know, and I think it makes a big impact because people know that I'm a, I'm a regular guy you know, I'm here. I'm teaching in school and I appreciate anybody's feedback comments. And I always like to talk with people if I can. Yeah, definitely. I mean, well, like your Instagram's already almost at 20,000 followers. Uh, what's your advice for young social media? Like, is it important to have your own business profile or what do you think on all that? To what, to, to what's my, what's, what's the question again? Sorry. Just like an advice or maybe like why it's important for like young folks to establish themselves on social media. Well, you know, I mean, it's, you never, why it's important. It's like, you, you just never know where what you can what you're going to do with that like for example mm-hmm. when i when i first joined this started instagram is when instagram was was pretty new and a, a guy a guy that i worked with was um you know always on it and he was trying to tell me oh you should join instagram but at the time i'm like i don't want i don't want to be part of the social media i want i want the anti-social media you know it was all like that <clears throat> and he's like he's like michael it's just photos you, you know you like photos right i'm like yeah i like photos so he showed me the app and i'm like oh all right. So I started, I joined and we just post food, at, you know, pictures of food and stuff. <clears throat> not, not knowing if I'm going to do anything with it. Little did I know several years later, it would become the primary vehicle that drives my, my book sales. Right. Yeah. I had, I had no idea. Right. But even if I didn't have any of that, it's still a good vehicle because like, for example, I go, I want to apply for a job, you know, and then they want to have a sense of what your work is like. And you could direct them, well, check out my Instagram page, right? Even mm-hmm. something as simple as that is pretty cool, you know? Yeah, definitely. But, but to be more specific, though, you know, this is for people who have that mindset, right? Meaning some people are on social media, it's, and it's totally fine, where you have just, it's your life, right? I picture on my cat, 
picture of my family, picture of my vacations, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and that's fine. But if you want to take your personal social media situation and hone it, right, meaning you want to brand yourself, right? Now that's a decision. Yeah. You got that's a decision. What do you want the brand to look like? What do you want the brand to represent? How do you want the vibe of the brand to be? So for me, very early on, I decided I'm going to keep my personal life personal, meaning private, generally speaking, and mm-hmm. I'm going to post things that are going to be representative of my brand. Well, what's my brand? Well, I'm a pastry chef. Or I'm a pastry chef instructor, so I'm going to show things like that, right? Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, when people come to my page, they know what to expect. It's not like one day you see beautiful bonbons and the next day you see pictures of, of me hiking in the woods or something. It's, it's just like a, yeah. there's a disconnect, you know? And, um, and again, that's not for everybody. You know, it's not, it's not just because someone might not want to do that. It doesn't mean it's bad. But, yeah. like I said, if you're asking me, you know, what, what's part of this, the keys of success, it's not one thing. It's, it's several, and, and that's certainly one of them. You know, just brand yourself. Don't post stupid stuff, you know. And mm-hmm. and, and also the photos got to be tight. The photos need to be nice, yeah. you know. And I see I see a lot of people, they post blurry photos or photos that are bleached out or just not that flattering or they're too dark or, you know. So if you really want to, like, get into it further, you might want to read up on or take a class about food photography, you know, learn about you know, the rules of the thirds and, you know, identifying focal points and learning about lighting and, you know, it doesn't take much. Get a proper phone, mm-hmm. get a proper phone with a proper camera and you can start doing some good stuff right, right away. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I know you have to start to get back to class. Uh, my yep. last, uh, I have two more questions left. Uh, the first one is one piece of advice for a young pastry chef listening to this right now. Piece of advice for a young pastry chef listening to this right now. Mm-hmm. Oh, I think I think it goes back to what I had touched on earlier. You know, the piece of advice that I would have is to, you know, work, try to work at the best possible places that you could work into. You know, I would not, I would not, like for example, if you if you have an opportunity to get a job at a super high level place, and you have an, and you have another opportunity to get a job at a place not quite as high level, but the the, the super high level place is paying a little bit less, so you want to go for the other place. It could be a short sighted decision, you know. Mm-hmm. Like you get an extra dollar an hour working at uh, Panera versus, you know, working at Danielle. I, I think that you're making a, you know, a misguided decision there because you're going to learn for your career a hell, of, a hell of a lot more working for the high level place. Does that make, okay. does that make sense? Yeah. That, it totally you know, does. I'm not sure if I'm wording that right. You could paraphrase that for me. No, yeah, no, I, that totally makes sense. Yeah. And then, and then also I would further say, you know, don't stay there for years on end. You want to stay there long enough to have it be respectable for your resume. Nobody wants to hire someone who moves on every few months. But you stay there a year or two, that's it. And then you can work at, the, at another great place to gain a different perspective and a whole other set of, uh, you know, eyes. Like, you know, how I worked at Boulay and then also Danielle and that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And uh, this is a question I ask everybody that comes on is uh, – what does it mean to you to be a part of the Line Cook Nation? It's kind of like the community I'm trying to build for chefs to connect, grow, and whatnot. Like, what are your thoughts? So, like, what does it mean to be a part of? Uh, you know, for, I think it's great. I mean, for me, it's wonderful to have an opportunity to just stay connected to the industry um, in, in multiple ways. I mean, I feel very connected as it is. You know, being being um, you know close to the students on a daily basis in, in that respect. You know, of course, I participate in other venues. Like, I just got back from the American Culinary Federation conference, and that's another way to connect. 
and you know and you know your your particular outlet is is, is yet another way that I can just stay connected and share my experience and and you know it's not a one way street i learn i learn too from from you and mm-hmm. and uh you know so i i think it's important i like to, i like to stay connected and be out there I'm, i love the industry and and i want to be a part of uh what's going on in the industry so you know for me it, what it means is just to be inclusive and and be proactive and you know an active participant awesome yeah well thank you so much Jeff. So there you have it, the conversation with me and Chef Zabrowski. Um, I hope you all enjoy it. I hope you all took a lot away from it, and I really hope to hear some feedback on it. And like I said, Chef, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, go check out his book, The Pastry Chef's Little Black Book. And just, you know, like I said, I, I can't explain how much I admire the fact that a chef is so in tune with Instagram, so in tune with building your brand, and is willing to say this to young cooks like me and probably the rest of y'all listening. And I'm very excited for that. I'm also very excited for the episodes that are going to be coming out soon. Um, I have a lot of cool guests coming in April. Uh, next week's going to be Michael Carroll from uh, Band of Bohemia, the co-founder of Band of Bohemia. And then after that, you'll be getting a schedule for uh, the podcast coming in April. And like I said, I'm super excited and super stoked to be doing these. And thank you so much for listening. And I will talk to you soon. Thank you, Nation.